Hi friends, this is Nima, your host for the Hyper Growth Experience. Uh, we are doing something different this, this, this episode. Uh, so this is actually a special episode with Kyle and Dan from Voris. Uh, and they have their own podcast called the Startup Growth Podcast and they invited me to be on it as a guest. Uh, we're just reposting that podcast here uh, because I thought it was a very interesting conversation to have with uh, folks that are clearly, clearly mastering the sales process and building sales teams. Uh, they're doing really great work there at Voris, helping some uh, B2B SaaS startups scale uh, their sales teams and building um, the sales culture that's needed to, to go through hyper growth. Um, and especially at the end of this episode, we talked about attribution in B2B, which is a little bit different. You have to do it at a group level. And, and it was quite interesting to, to chat with them about that. Um, so I'm excited for you to hear this. Um, and please also listen to their podcast. It's quite great. It's called the Startup Growth Podcast. Um, and if you haven't yet, please check out our episode with Dan, episode number 11. Uh, it's a great masterclass on building a sales team that thrives. Please spend some time um, realizing that this is not a video podcast. <laughs> We're on Spotify and YouTube. Please subscribe there as well if you haven't. Um, the video aspect actually helps a lot to give you context about the, the sort of vibe we have when we're, we're having these conversations. I think there's a lot of missed um, context when it's just video or when it's just audio. So I'm happy that we're now doing these videos and, and our uh, producer is very great at, at putting some really funny um, gifts uh, in the middle of the conversation as well to, to give it some flair. So uh, I highly recommend it. Um, thank you again. And I'm uh, excited for you to listen to this one. Here's uh, Kyle and Dan and me on, on their episode. All right. So welcome back to the Startup Growth Podcast. My name is Dan McDermott. I'm the CMO here at Voris. I'm joined, as always, by Kyle Van Voris, our CEO. And uh, Kyle, how are you? I'm doing excellent, Dan. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Uh, today, we'll be talking with Nima Gardita, who's the, uh, the co-founder, president, and uh, CTO over at Paramill. Uh, Nima, how's it going? Good, good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, great to see you. We spoke a little bit earlier this week, so this will be a great chance to uh, catch up again and go into stuff on the uh, marketing side, whereas on Monday, we spoke about the sales side of things. So I'm excited to talk to you today. Yeah, let's do it. I'm excited to get into it. Super. Yeah, so yeah, Kyle, go ahead. Yeah, I was gonna say this is gonna be super fun. I'm excited. I'd like to learn a little bit about your organization. You know, why should we be talking to you? <laughs> we know, but our audience doesn't. So why don't you share a little bit about what you guys do over there, what your process looks like, and then uh, we'll use that as our launchpad here to a good conversation. Yeah, thanks. So you know, the way I think about Paramel is that um, we are a growth studio focused on paid acquisition, uh, and what really that means is that we bring on four different disciplines. Uh, together to do the work that it takes to scale up early stage companies from right around you know 100 200k of ad spend to millions of ad spend per month and the four disciplines are ad operations so media buying the more classical sort of marketing creative production so we have our own studio we have everything you need there to produce the content and then the second last the, th the other two are conversion rate optimization. So we have uh, CRO folks who both design and implement sort of um, acquisition flows. And then the last piece is engineering in a large, in a large sense. So there's data engineering, there's data analysis, uh, there's data science. Um, and that discipline is, has been sort of the, the part that was very different about us at first. And now I think there's more growth teams doing it 
or they're combining all these disciplines together. But that's that's the, how our company is set up. And you know, in terms of why it's uh, interesting to talk to to someone like me is um, you know we just see a lot of spend. Um, we spend about you know hundred plus million dollars a month a year um, for startups. So you know. Uh, we help them scale quite rapidly, and it's always useful to see what trends are like and what is working across the board. And uh, especially because of our model of experimentation, we we have sort of like very strong proofs that this specific structure on Facebook is working right now, for instance. So, um, yeah, that's maybe. Yeah, I, I'll I'll pass it back to you, but I think that's maybe the context that maybe. Yeah, you that's good. Fantastic. One, one thing you mentioned there um, is you take them from 100 to 200k in ad spend to a million, and I think you said a month, right? Yeah, these are all monthly spends, yeah. Right. So I'm, I'm curious, if any, but what is the biggest difference between a campaign when somebody's spending 100K a month versus a million a month? Is it simply we just shove more money into the exact same campaign? I'm sure complexity is added at a certain point. So I'd love to hear a little bit of your thoughts around that. Yeah, that's a good question. So, you know, I think there's two general differences. One is that the process in which you have to go through to continue increasing the spend is different um, mm-hmm. at, a, at an organizational level. Like how are you thinking about prioritizing your experiments is all of a sudden different. Um, and the second thing is, and the reason we cut it off at that scale um, is because you get access to this other part of specifically Facebook and Google that have machine learning auctions where you can use data as a tool for targeting and optimization. And before that level, there's just not enough conversion or volume of conversions going in. So it's actually quite hard to use that lever, the data lever. Um, and so we wait until people have figured that part out. There's also other connotations that comes with that. Usually you are much closer to product market fit. If you're spending that much money and you're ready to scale and the, the right. market is going to actually be receptive to your product. So, um, But the most important thing is the process part, I would say, um, where you have to be a lot more careful you spend more time debating on what to do as opposed to doing it. And the reason for that is because the business is now officially reliant on paid acquisition to some extent. So if we just mess it up, all of a sudden everything falls apart on the business side. So it's almost as if you're handling someone's money. It's it's almost capital allocation at that point. So that's well, kind of how we think about it. Yeah, I imagine it's a big responsibility. I actually I have like a bunch of questions now swirling in my head. Okay, so it's sort of fascinating to me because I, I I know basically nothing about paid acquisition. <laughs> you know, I know a little bit about some organic channels, but mostly mm-hmm. I'm just this dumb brute force sales guy, and that's what I've been doing most most of my career. So I I have a lot of questions around this. So I imagine so somebody comes to you, they're spending 100k a month. Like you know, we have something working. Once you get 100k in ad spend a month like obviously we have something working i would imagine then are the people coming to you like look we've tried to scale up past this and mm-hmm. we haven't been successful like we actually see decrease in results uh, or is it that hey my 100k is now yielding less and less and less and i need to figure out why i'm just curious what the motivator to have a conversation with your your team is yeah i think that's a good question there's there's a few different approach that reasons people come to us one is what you mentioned right that people have like found some ceiling in their spend and they cannot figure it out right and this is where it's actually useful to work with agencies because we just see more, we have more information. Right. And so we can look at your account and say, oh yeah, you know what? We actually think this is your ceiling. You may see mostly diminishing returns by increasing it in this channel. So maybe our recommendation is to 
try another channel or, or something like that. The other reason people come to us is that, hey, we figured some things out. Like, look, we have these pieces of creative that are working. This specific, specific set of audiences are working. We just don't know how to take this and, and double it or triple it every couple of months. And that is much more common. The second one, I think if you're stuck at that level of 100K, there is probably product market fit issues mm. or fundamental production issues on the creative side. We do come in and look at those. And sometimes it's so obvious that we would do better, that we still take those on. We'll look at it and say, hey, it just you're not doing most of the things that you should be doing at that scale already. If we do those, we're probably going to get a 30% uh, incremental value out of the money. So let us take over. In, in a handful of cases, we were much better than 30%, right? So you know, we had this client come in. They were spending a lot more than 100K. They were spending $7 million a month. And wow. Wow. They, and, and they came to us and they, th- they, they said, hey, we, found, we think we found the ceiling. And we thought, well, maybe there is, you have found the ceiling. So they are an interesting company in healthcare. So the market is actually massive. Mm. But the account was built by a bunch of folks that were quite smart in finding a scalable way to do what their thought process was, which is, hey, they have all these like different keywords they need to go after. This is on, on Google. And they had structured in such a way that was easy to manage but not necessarily the most optimal way to get Google to allocate the capital. And so when we came in, we took them from seven to 1.5 with, for, with the same top line numbers. So wow. we like one sixth their CAC in a, in a 60 day period or something like wow. that. Um, Jeez. This, this made us look good, but actually we, we made much less money than we thought on that deal because we do a percentage of ad spend. Um, oh, right. <laughs> so it was a tough, it was a tough month. I think I remember telling a team like you guys are very, very good at your job. Um, too good almost. And that's, a, that's an interesting problem to face. And we've actually since changed our pricing model quite a bit with a lot of folks to be more incentivized towards the same thing, which is a combination of scale and CAC. But there are sort of like best practices that are currently um, working in the market that we always apply. But those things actually change every six months. So, you know, I think in the sales world, maybe a a parallel I have, and and, and my head of sales recently told me is that usually people used to think that you need to have seven touches with someone. Now people are talking about 12. That is like a heuristic you have in your mind of like, okay, I need to have this level of depth in my sequences, right? For let's say Facebook marketing, there are similar things like, oh, you need to have 50 conversions per ad set per week for the ad set to be in its most optimal state, for instance, Mm. on on the machine learning side. Now that number is 20, so that's a recent change because of the iOS 14.5 stuff. Facebook's tried really hard to work with less data, and so they've been changing that, right? But that stuff changes every six months, so we have to rediscover these rules, both by literally calling up Facebook and saying, hey, what's going on? And But but on the other side is literally running experiments and, and getting data up. Yeah, I imagine the experimentation is huge. And I really want to dive down this best practice thing, but I have like one more question, but I need to tee, tee it up a little bit. I'm curious from the people who come to you once they've gotten to 100K in ad spend a month, because a lot of the companies we work with, they vary, but 100K is probably less common than people who are spending less than that uh, on ad spend per month. So I'm trying to think if somebody comes to you and they're doing about 100K a month in ad spend, were they typically working with another agency before or were mm-hmm. they managing the ad spend themselves in-house and they just sort of self-taught how to do it, got themselves there and decided to go to a real firm? Yeah, that's a good question. There, I, we see a mix. My personal preference is that you've been trying it 
by yourself. Um, okay. And and the reason I actually generally recommend this to marketers and founders of early stage companies is because what'll happen when you try to do it yourself, you start building the understanding on how to have these conversations about capital allocation in, in on these different channels. So then when you talk to agencies, you can actually judge how good they are. Um, so if you've gone immediately to an agency and started doing it, um, unless you already know how these things work, I would say you're not in a great position to continue interviewing new agencies, right? Yeah, that makes It's kind of the same thing probably with sales, right? You want the founder to be selling right. and then hiring the salespeople and tell them, here's what I've learned so far, right? And, totally. and being able to actually hand off in a, in a, a super, super useful way. Yeah, you, you run into this with founders who try to um, hire salespeople way too early. And you're like, you should really be doing these calls. Are you yeah. booked out You know, until for two weeks? No? Okay, well, let's get you back busy. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay, so that's that's helpful. And this is like the real question I want to ask then. Because um, I was curious to see if, if um, like what you preferred more agencies, if agencies make sense earlier or self-learning. I tend to lean more to self-learning for most things in general. because I think it's important to have some kind of competency for the exact reason that you mentioned. But I'm curious then, how do you suggest people learn how to run ads themselves? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think there are there are companies out there trying to teach you, right? So if you mm -hmm. go to Demand Curve, has some decent courses there. Reforge has some decent courses. But the reality is that the best thing you can do is to actually spend money on it and learn what the different knobs are that you can sort of move up and down and mess around with it. It's not rocket science. It's not like it's investing. Uh, it's not as complicated as actually investing in, let's say, stock market. Um, because there's a big difference between stock markets and these auctions. The auctions want the same thing that you do, which is they want you to get users at the cheapest costs possible. It's actually how they're done. They're, they, they use them, the, the phrasing they use is discounted pacing algorithms, where they try to get you the cheapest clicks, clicks as much as possible for as long as possible. So they're actually on your side. So you should, you should be, to some extent, getting some results immediately and then iterating from there. And the second thing I want everyone to get comfortable with is losing money to learn because you literally are paying to learn and it's just the only way to do it. And so when you get into it yourself, you inherently end up losing some money and you feel the pain, which hopefully gets you to a point where you are more structured about your experimentation which is kind of what you really have to be very good at. It's the only thing that I tell people is, can you tell me exactly how you experiment, how you get results in a way that you can trust these learnings over time and compound the learnings? And most people come to us having spent maybe hundreds of thousands, or in that example, like 7 million, not having a process in place that could tell me, here's exactly what we've learned, here's what the truths are about our market, about our user base, about a creative that works. Yeah, you know, I want to say something, and I've been hogging this, so Dan, I'm going, to, I'm going to kick it off to you in a minute, but something you just said just made me think a, a little bit about the mindset of an entrepreneur, where you mentioned a client that came to you spending $7 million a month in ads, and you were able to get them down to $1.5 million with the exact same results. I think a normal person would go, I can't believe I've been wasting $5.5 million every month for the past, you know, let's say six months. When for a real, like for a real entrepreneur, that's now just a story. 
hey, yeah. I was wasting <laughs> $5.5 million a month for six months until we worked with this company and figured out how to not. And I just think I, I wanted to call that out because I, I think it's just kind of a, I, I don't know, I like to highlight the different in different thought processes that like entrepreneurs and founders like tend to have. And that just stood out to me as something that's kind yeah, of Yeah, I, I would say like, this is not something, I, I don't recommend you speak wasting that much money <laughs> uh, but there, there certainly was in the time and the, um it made sense at, at the time for them the unit economics actually did oh, work sure. at that rate we just made them much more profitable as a business the capital markets were such that they didn't care that much right yeah so they sure. really wanted the top line growth and they were getting rewarded by it by the capital markets where they were getting more money raised every well, six very months interesting point here which is maybe things have are, are forced to change a little bit now because we're yeah. seeing some uh, pullback in the capital markets less venture money being thrown around that leads to people being more thoughtful about the different channels that they're using to generate customers and they're thinking a lot more about their cac payback i mean i i, I talk to vcs pretty often Mm-hmm. And I can tell you, a lot of them are like, I don't care about payback period. You know, at the early stage, at the early stage, um, when you're talking about like Series A, they're like, ah, eh, eighteen months at the high end. You know, well now it's probably going to change a little bit, and you got to be a little bit more thoughtful. Yeah, I remember thinking eighteen months was ridiculous, even like eight, twelve years ago or something when I first started. There's got to be something that some part of me is because I'm like from the east, I'm from Iran. And so we don't actually, we don't have a lot of trust in institutions over there. So yeah. <laughs> you, you, don't, you just don't assume that you can get more money um, <laughs> at all on any numbers. So you, you want to break even as soon as possible. There are really good numbers. I think Craft Ventures has been putting up, putting out some really good content around now. What should you expect? Maybe as a B2B company, for instance, and uh, they have the burn multiple metric that I really like that um, kind of encompasses a lot of CAC and LTV Um under one singular metric you can look at. But yeah, I, I agree with you. I think the capital markets are changing. I think we've seen this in our ad spend already. We maybe seen like a decent decline from all our clients, which we're happy they're, they're doing it. Sometimes people were willing to spend more, even at the diminishing returns, just because they wanted more top line, not necessarily as focused on the bottom line. And I think this shift is very good for the companies themselves, honestly, right? And the mentality that goes behind building good businesses, you know? Good businesses, good processes. Yeah, for sure. That's, yeah. a, that's a great way to look at it. Um, I mean, just on that point, I'm really interested in hearing, even if it's not scientific and not perfect, but is there a general uh, couple of numbers that you would look at that are that are healthy when you're looking at specific metrics? So you mentioned the burn metric, but is there, in a more simple level, let's say that I'm, I'm a founder and I've been running my own ads with sort of half decent results for the last year or so. Are there mm-hmm. numbers that I should be paying attention to specifically, let's say Facebook ads that um, that pop up and you say, oh, this is a healthy campaign or this is not? Yeah, I think that's a good question. So basically what we look for there um, to see if there is potential for scale, right? Is how consolidated are things? So if you have four or five campaigns and that's how much you're spending and you're still getting decent numbers, that's a good, very good sign which is interesting, right? So the more campaigns and ad sets you have and you're still profitable or let's say uh, close to profitability, that's a really good sign because consolidation uh, helps because you're now trusting the algorithm more to do the sub-targeting for you. So you're consolidating your audiences and putting them under one big audience. It's called stacking audiences. And so when you stack audiences, what ends up happening is that you're creating a larger overall audience and giving the machine learning model more leeway to choose from that overall audience. 
So if you're not consolidated and spending, let's say, 100K and you're getting decent results, we look at it and we're like, okay, immediately we're going to have a huge impact here. Um, we're going to be able to scale you up um, immediately, right? If you're already consolidated and like you have a handful of ad sets and you're barely making it, the question then goes to how big is the size of your audiences currently in, in the existing ad sets? Are there spaces for us to broaden, broaden them up? So the broad strategy, really what it means is, let's say you're going after 10 million people right now. That's your general market, even if you're B2B. Let's say you're B2B and even smaller, 500,000 people is the size of your audience. And you're getting something like 50 leads a week right now and under one ad set. What I would tell you to do is actually be less targeted and let Facebook do the work of targeting for you using the data. And then what your job becomes is, what signal do I give Facebook so then they learn that this is the type of person I'm looking for? So you know, one of the examples I have here is ramp.com is one of our clients. And they have this very long survey you have to fill out before you become a lead. And based on the answers of that survey, we send a separate event up to Facebook. And then so if you have answered the questions correctly, you're like considered an MQL. And we're, we're trying to get you MQLs as much as possible. And you know, MQL being marketing qualified lead. And the whole apparatus is set up to optimize towards that event. And the targeting is over time increased more and more and more. The size of it is increased. At some point, some of our even B2B brands, the targeting is all of the United States, even though they're a B2B brand, you know? Wow. I have a follow-up question here. I want to get a little tactical. So in that example where you have a survey to fill out and you send the questions back, um, how? Like, are they using type form and then within the, it's integrated with Facebook? I, I've never heard of that before. Yeah. So uh, Typeform turns out to be too slow. Uh, it loads too slowly for ads because one okay. of the other problems is you need sub-second load times on ads because otherwise people bounce. So generally speaking for acquisition, people are using this tool called FormSort. Uh, we're big fans of it. I think almost every single one of our clients uses it. And then there's like some custom JavaScript that we end up writing there based on the answers of the FormSort. Let's say uh, we send us something up or we hit up Clearbit pull in the data for that user after they put in their email and then use that information plus the answers of the form and then send it up. There's now a couple of companies doing um, linear regression on, on, on all of it. So they pull in all your page view data, they pull in your clear bit data and then uh, give you a score. And if it's above a certain score, then they send you send, uh, send that event up. In our experience, that sometimes works for consumer specifically, not so much for B2B. It's kind of been a... Uh, a mess on the B2B side. Wow, unbelievable. It's super sophisticated. Because mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. I'd never heard that before. Um, wow. It's new. This stuff is like maybe two years old, I would say. We've been doing it for maybe three or four, um, but now everyone's caught on on this. It's hugely helpful. Oh, I imagine. Yeah, because you know, I've always heard that the Facebook algorithm is really, really good. You know, I'd figure. And actually, that leads me to another question. For B2B, like, do you or do you do a lot of Facebook? Or, you know, I know people like LinkedIn and stuff too. Does it matter? I'm just curious. Yeah, so... We've been doing Facebook for B2B since we started. It's actually our original niche was B2B um, because no one was doing Facebook spend at the time. This is about four years ago when we started uh, and no one believed that you could do it. And so at the time, a lot of products that out now exist didn't exist and we did this manually, but effectively there are companies like Clearbit, uh, Metadata.io or say primer.com. 
what they have done is they've gone there and bought all the lists that you could possibly buy, possibly buy. So they have the massive lists of everyone in the US, let's say, for that works at X company and Y company. And you tell them, I want CEOs of SMBs between 25 people and 500. And instead of giving you the email address, what they've done is they've gone and like bought data from LiveRamp and all these other places and enriched those work email addresses with the personal email addresses. And right. then they upload that list to Facebook for you. So you're effectively getting LinkedIn level targeting on Facebook. Wow. And so it's become quite useful to use it. And for a while, and even now is cheap, much cheaper than LinkedIn to get the same lead. And because people, even though they're, you know, professionals they're on facebook and instagram you know it's just totally. still yeah, people totally. <laughs> you know, so i have two questions here um one is about the the classic argument of oh when they're on facebook the they're in leisure mode and they're less likely to take action when they're on linkedin they're more in work mode but before i get to that um and i'll ask that better in a minute i'm just curious so if somebody wanted to do this themselves and they were going to run Facebook ads, you know, because one of the things you said earlier is it's better to learn it yourself. Do you recommend them get Clearbit and set it up that way from the beginning? Or should they first experiment with just like getting conversions through Facebook? Is Facebook where they start? That kind of thing. Yeah, it's a good question. So generally speaking, I think it depends on what type of product you have. If your product is, a, is a, the kind that people already know that they have the problem, and people already know that there are solutions out there, you want to go after high intent channels. So that really effectively means search, right? So people are searching for it, go get them there. I see, interesting. Right? And, and, that, and that's, that's the part of the, let's say if you were looking at a um, demand curve of sorts, um, the first 10% probably are going to be on search because they are they're looking for it, they're in market, um, they're likely sometimes even early adopters, you can capture them now and that's like all good news. Uh, there's a slight uh, caveat to that is that if it, you're in a super competitive market, the keywords might be so expensive that it just doesn't make sense for you to do it. And then you have to literally uh, differentiate by not being on search and just going straight to some, some form of social discovery channel. And then that's when I would ask you, maybe st start going on LinkedIn. Uh, and the reason for this is because even though LinkedIn is going to be more expensive, Clearbit and all these other tools are actually also expensive. They're like in the tens of thousands of uh, dollars per year to purchase. Uh, so you, when you're in the earlier stages, LinkedIn gives you the targeting you want, but then what you want to do is just focus on clicks there and then retarget them on Google Display and Facebook. I see. And so you're getting cheaper clicks in and then retargeting those folks. Eventually, as you're scaling up, you want to open up the Facebook channel, then you go out there and buy some of these data tools to then get the targeting apparatus done. Um, yeah, that this was that That's was my favorite part of this conversation so far. That was awesome. <laughs> um, yeah, because you know, there's so much. I don't know. It's it's tough in the marketing space. There's a lot of people who are very good at marketing, selling you how to do marketing, and they might be very. I don't know. I just think of all the internet entrepreneur, internet advertisers out there, and you just get a lot of crap. You know, and it's like, mm -hmm. oh, you got to do it this way. This is the best way. This is the one secret that it's going to take to scale your ads. Blah blah blah. Ugh. I know. I'm sure they it's make the they make us look bad. I always like get some of those ads sometimes from these like basically info SaaS companies trying to sell you the right. best next marketing thing, and it not only is the most like high like super cringy, it also just devalues the whole industry. Um, and it's a general reminder, and we talk a lot about this, that there is like a historical bad faith generally in our industry. 
right? So yeah. uh, we're named after um, one of the first ever advertising campaigns um, by Pear Soap, uh, which has become the Unilever of today, actually. Um, and they had this artist, his name was John Milias, which is where the mill com- oh, cool. comes from, right? So Pear Mill. And he had this um, painting and they used it. But that same company grabbed a series of John Milias's painting and painted these babies black and had these soap commercials, not commercials, but like um, ads that the soap was getting rid of the black off their skin. Oh, jeez. Right? And so we actually have this. We tell this story to everyone in our company that when they first joined about where the name comes from. And we actually knew about this when we named the company this because we wanted it to be a reminder that we can screw up. Mm. And that the messaging we use, the, the p- things that we put out there, um, millions of people see, and we should be very careful about that too. Uh, so I think that the industry just generally has a lot of bad historical info- <laughs> things sitting there, but also there are still people that ba- with bad faith in it and they just there for the clicks and getting money out of people as soon as possible and fast as possible, you know? I mean, this is wow. something we, we talked about on Monday a little bit because, I mean, we have a similar story on the sales world too. I mean, if you bring up sales to some people, they have a negative reaction, many people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I probably was one of those people. <laughs> so it's, it's really interesting to kind of go in and see, okay, well, how do you add value to a space where you, you, you change something, you, you really do try to act ethically and in a way that is a sort of win-win for the business and for the, the user. Um, I'm curious, like, is a, when you come into companies, do you kind of work with them specifically around this topic? Like, how do we, how do we maintain, uh, for example, in our messaging, how do we keep it so that we don't hopefully dip into those, uh, those types of mistakes? Do you do any of that sort yeah. of training? Yeah. So we, we, um, we have essentially like two levels of filters. Uh, one is that at the company level, we just will not work with people that we think there is questionable things to begin with, right? So I have this example I give because it always like to some extent hurts, but it's the right thing to have done for us is that Jewel came to us like a couple of years ago and we immediately rejected them automatically, right? We're like, well, you just don't fit. You're not ethically sound. We're just not going to work with you, right? Uh, there was another weight loss company that came to, came to us. They were spending millions. Um, we just weren't willing to work with them because it felt like it was snake oil, right? So there was like that level of, Hey, the founders of the company, and then actually when we are unsure about something, we share it with the whole company and say, what do you all think? Do you think it makes sense for us to work with this company? Because here is the areas in which we're unsure about, right? And then the second thing is after we start working with them, um, we're currently working on this where we, have, we want them to sign an ethical code. But what we do is there is one of our kickoffs, we explicitly discuss ethics, um, but we also want to have people literally sign something just more of as a, as a gesture of, yes, we agree that we want to be ethical. Um, you know. I think that's a really special thing. I mean, that's, that's something I, I've, I've heard many people talk about, you know, an intent to do such a, th- well, uh, to just protect the ethics of, of a, uh, of a campaign, but to actually sit down and get them to, you know, name on paper, it, the, the, the gesture is, is quite, quite important. I think it's mm-hmm. quite a, it's quite interesting. I, I think, um, yeah, I, I, have, I have many questions on, on this, but I think one uh, one more question that comes up for me that is a uh, sort of a hot button topic within uh, the the little space of marketing that my foot is in is whether whether or not, for example, you you should have gated content, and you know that leads back to should you have content you know that you're that you're targeting with with ads. Do you have a particular stance on 
how much protection a, uh, a company should be giving its content when it comes to what they're producing. Yeah, I think you're not going to like what I'm going to say about this one. Um, I, 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 we basically completely moved off of gating, gated content over the past year or so for all our B2B clients. And the philosophy is this, right? We were talking about on, on, when we talked about sales, um, Dan, that everything, every touch point you have with the user should be net positive. That you are trying to provide value when they click on your ad, when they see the email from the salesperson that comes in, that you're trying to make their day better and make their work easier and their job easier. And so when you have gated content, you're effectively asking for something before you give them the value. And that feels philosophically wrong. And it also turns out performance-wise, it's better not to gate it because what happens is your auctions, uh, because people are taking the action, you want them faster, which is the click, and they go around and they stay longer. These ad networks like Facebook and Google will think, this is valuable. I want to send more people down this route. And then so you get cheaper clicks. And then so you can retarget these folks that you now know are highly interested in what you're doing. And you create what we call... Uh, we call these like creative funnel flows where we just know that you are learning about this topic inside of the company. So let's say like one of your futures, there's a series of blog posts, right? And then now after you pass two or three of them, we then ask for the lead and say, hey, you want to schedule a demo? So we, we push you through this flow of creative before we ask something of you. Um, and it turns out to work much better than get a content. So let me ask, I want, I want to dive a little deeper into this to make sure I fully understand. So let's say someone's scrolling through Facebook, they see an ad that's like, I'll just use my stuff because that's in my head right now. But look, we have this one article uh, that Dan just updated for um, sales compensation guide. It works really, really well for us. We get a lot of leads from it. So let's say you're scrolling through Facebook, you get an ad saying like, you know, what should your sales comp plan look like? You click on it, it goes right to a blog post. That blog post has a template for them to create their own uh, sales comp plan that's totally ungated. Then is the plan from there to retarget them with adjacent content to some, what somebody may be looking for if they're working on a sales compensation plan. And then on the third time they have come to engage with the site, then we prompt them to book a demo. Like, I'm just curious, tactically, is that what you're talking about? Yeah, super close, right? So let's say they click on the first ad that okay. goes to the piece of content. Now we can retarget them, right? Right. Uh, for two different ways. One is that anyone that's visited that page on your blog can be retargeted. The other thing is anyone interacting with an ad can also be retargeted. Um, so that content could be fully on Facebook. You don't even need to, them to leave. If it's a tiny video, giving them value, right? And they're going to listen to that 30-second video. That in itself is useful. Now they're in our universe. Right. Now, if we feel like, okay, the second step is they were looking for compensation. Maybe the second thing you want to show them is recruiting, how to recruit good salespeople. Right. Right. And then, so now you want to show them that content. And the third thing to show them is effectively a lead form, direct to lead form. No that more value. Hey, like, hey, we want to talk to you. We think we can solve your problem. And right. here's the solution we have. Right. So you, right. Okay. you kind of walk them through a series of steps. So do you try to stay on platform like that as much as possible? Uh, it's, it's dependent on the specific product and solution, but, um, ideally you're spend uh, you're on platform for that first touch because it's just cheaper to get just pure views than gen clicks um yeah yeah super super interesting so now if somebody is 
much earlier then? Because one of the things you mentioned was search being the, probably the best place to start. Do you take the same type of approach where it's like, hey, somebody types in sales compensation and you just mm. send them straight to the blog post that's ungated or do you then gate because you're early and that matters? Yeah, it totally depends on the level of intent you think that set of keywords have. Oh, so if you think it's super high intent, then you go straight for a conversion, right? If you think it's a lower intent thing, then you go for more clicks and you want them to just, you know, be retargeted with maybe display or Facebook or other channels that you have, right? So it all does depend on the level of intent. And that's actually how you generally want to group your ad spend on Google is based on intent. It's actually new over the past year. They've gone very good at this on their end. Um, yeah, this is, yeah, this, I love, I love this conversation. I, you know, now that I think about it, Dan, this is the first time we've actually, well, we've, but even myself, uh, you've probably talked to people like this, that I've just talked to somebody who like understands B2B marketing very well. You know, like, and, and I'll just tell you, uh, Nima, a little bit of like my background is I kind of grew up around the internet marketing world a lot. So mm -hmm. like it, it, when I was young, like my dad owned a, a bunch of medical centers and he would go to a lot of these seminars to learn how to do marketing. And, and he's actually told me, he said, once I figured out how to do marketing for my, uh, my medical centers, it totally changed my life because I could now turn on, get a bunch of customers. If I was too busy, I could shut them off. Like he, he said he had full, he felt like he had full control and he learned it all mm. from Dan Kennedy. And, you know, D Dan Kennedy, I, I think for the most part, he's held in high esteem. I'm not sure if that's true totally, but, um, you know, one of the old school copywriter, you know, mm -hmm. mar you know marketing folks, um, I think mostly by like postcards and stuff. But uh, anyway, from there, like I, it interacted with a whole bunch of internet marketers. So I'd been around that world for a really long time, like the Frank Kearns, like all of these people. And, um, a lot of them questionable ethics for sure, for sure. So when I speak to people, I get a lot of that, um, you know, a lot of that feedback of like, you know, quick conversions, just blast through and, and not worry about the intent and, or, or anything like that and use really bold, audacious language in order to get a conversion quicker and this yeah. type of stuff. And I have a weird feeling around it. And it's nice to talk to somebody who, you know, has, who knows the other side of it. Cause I feel like I talk to a lot of people who don't actually know and they say, Oh, you should just do it this way. Cause they're repeating talking points from some other person like yourself, I'm sure who mm -hmm. actually knows what they're talking about. But this is the first time I got to talk to somebody who like actually gets how the whole thing works. So this has been really refreshing. Yeah. And I think like, you know, what's cool. I think talking to Dan was very helpful to know that you all think similarly because ultimately the way to build some of these fast growing, super valuable companies is to not do any of that, not do the super aggressive things because you're trying to build very long-term relationships with these customers. And so every touch point has to be, has to be super thoughtful. Um, and so, yeah, I, I agree with you that, um, well, I'm glad this is interesting to you, which is great, but also I think it, uh, it seems like we have a very similar philosophy on how to uh, grow these companies, right? We, we yeah, definitely man. do. Go ahead, Dan. I, I think uh, just real quick on this, um, the idea of how quickly things change and having, we all know where things are going. It's basically all the algorithms out there getting better and better, all the major ones getting better and better what they do and understanding the nuance of sort of human intent. I think that's the, the best word to come back to this. And um, I think it's, it's really interesting to, again, why it's valuable to have a third party come in and be able to tell you what is happening in the industry. What are we seeing across the whole board than within your mm -hmm. niche, than within, you know, versus maybe a couple of competitors. Um, 
I'm curious, maybe could you give us a couple of examples that you've, you've, you've touched on a couple, but what are some of the, the big changes that have happened maybe in the last six months um, or, or maybe the past year uh, that have sort of shifted the landscape a little bit? Yeah, I think it, it depends on the channel. So I would say for Google, this intent grouping is the biggest thing. Uh, they've been talking about it for like three years, but they cracked something in their machine learning models over the last six months, I would say, that have, has made it so that we actually can compete well with the old structures and beat them with it. And, you know, when I say these things, I actually have so much conviction because we run an experiment across like all of our clients all of a sudden when we are getting close to high level of conviction on a new structure and then we just prove it. Right, because they're just like, oh, it worked not just across these three clients, but across you know mm -hmm. millions of ad spend across different industries and B two B and B two C and marketplaces. And look, it works. Like there's a fundamental truth here right now, right? So the intent thing on Google seems to be like the biggest change. Um, although it's been around for a couple of years, it's finally getting to a point where it's more performant. Um, on the Facebook side. Unfortunately, there has been like it's been harder, right? So what's happened is, and if you have heard about this, is that the, the iOS 14.5 changes have made it such that they no longer have per user information. At best, they have aggregated information within a 48-hour window. What they have done is they try to do the same thing, which is like trying to get the data in, try to sub-target the bigger audience that they have on their end and match it with the people that they think bought within those days and They've gotten better at it, so there was a huge hit that if you were a mobile company, you 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 got. Um, but if you're web, you still got a hit, but it's, it wasn't as bad. The main problem with Facebook is the early stages. So you're effectively penalized as an early stage company right now because you cannot get enough data into the system for you to take advantage of these machine learning things. Mm. So as our audience says, as much as possible, and then relying on the optimization event, right? So let's say MQL is your optimization event if you're a B2B company. And then creative to sub-target the larger audience for you. And so the creative optimization problem is that I would say the most intellectually interesting part of this game where I want to go after CEOs and CFOs, let's say for a product, but the audience is best to be stacked. I want the CF CFOs and CEOs on the same audience. So how do I make sure that the CEOs see the CEO content and the CFOs see the CFO content? And so effectively, you can do this, more or less. You're going to get some pollination, right? Cross-pollination. Right. But you can do this by producing enough different vibes of creative that then Facebook's algorithm fits to the sub-target of the audience for you automatically. So you literally, I can show you data that says, as long as the vibe is for like the CEO and it's just like maybe a cinematography approach or copywriting approach or typography approach or something like that, you will see more CEO leads come out of those uh, ads, even though some CFOs will come out of it, but mostly you will see the, the target audience that you want. Because Facebook reads all the uh, creative content and feeds it into the ML model. That's incredible. Yeah, that's that's super cool. I think it's very fun. <laughs> well, it's super cool. Yeah, and that's one of the things I really love about marketing is it's a really data. It seems like honestly, it seems like the further up the funnel you go, the more data driven you have to be. 
income. Mm-hmm. And, uh, mm-hmm. It's actually one of the things that we're very good at is um, understanding this, the data, you know, along this, the uh, the sales process. And the further you go up, like once you go to SDRs who are doing cold outreach, um, more data driven. And once you go to marketing, it's it even more data driven, which is just totally fascinating to me. I have a, a, an actual, a, another question here based on something that you said earlier, I'm trying to find my notes here. You mentioned that at a certain point you mentioned, like, as you start running ads, you should see results pretty quickly. And I'm just curious, how do you define results in, um, in this world where there is no, or since it's not gated, I would imagine the results technically come later. How do you know if you're on the right track, if you're not gating your content? Yeah, so if you're spending early, this like uh, creating content and gating people and all that sort of stuff, I think it's too early for you, right? Because of the earlier demand curve conversation we had, there is people who are ready to buy now. Let's find those people, right? So your goal in the beginning should be, am I generating leads? Are these leads converting immediately to MQLs and SQLs and closed ones, right? Um, Later on, then it becomes like a more nuanced conversation about, am I trending towards the right costs per MQL or cost per SQL or cost per pipeline or whatever the metric it is that you are looking at, which all really means like how much is it going to cost me to close a deal, right? Right, um, right. Yeah. And you so bake I, that all in into your models. Yeah. And it was going back to what you said earlier about the higher the tent, intent, the more focus you should have on conversion. And if you're just starting out, you should probably focus all your energy on the higher intent because yeah. that actually will convert. Yeah. Uh, okay, the problem so- with it is it's just like there, there's not a lot of scale in that, right? Um, right. Exactly. The keywords that are super high intent, there's less people searching for the problem because maybe they already have another solution. You have to sell them on it or they don't even know that there is a solution out there for the problem that they have. Right. Yeah, yeah, it totally makes sense. So I want to talk a little bit about attribution. So I get that if you're really early, focus on on high intent, which means more conversion focus. As you start getting more mature in your ads, ads, um, you're going to want to focus a little bit more on other ways of generating interest, which might be some less gated content. And it'll be a little bit more, I guess, uh, a little bit longer before you start seeing conversions not as quick. So help me understand... Um, a bit about attribution. So one of the challenges we run into often, especially with companies that are a little bit larger, is um, they don't really know how to attribute their leads to specific campaigns. So an example of this that I'll just make up is going back to what we talked about earlier. We ran an ad for sales compensation and it was native on Facebook. And then we sent them another video that was about hiring salespeople. And then the third thing was actually a conversion. Well, now if you start adding events and you start adding off of Facebook, you know, maybe some LinkedIn, maybe some Google, there are a lot of things this person might've saw. What do you consider, what do you attribute the revenue of that deal that closed to? Is it whatever actually converted them into meeting with somebody or do you go all the way back to the first thing that they saw? Yeah. Yeah. Great question. Can we extend this podcast by two hours? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> clear so, my calendars. Yeah. Clear our calendars. Uh, so, you know, I think that there's two things to discuss here, especially in the world of B2B. One is basically the model, right? Like what is the model we're looking at as a first touch, last touch, is it a multi-touch model, is it a weighted model, and we can talk about uh, which ones that make sense for which companies maybe in a second. But the second thing is, this is the hard part, is that you have to attribute the group level for B2B, which sucks effectively, right? Like I click on an ad, 
and I am an engineering manager at company X. And I'm like, oh, this is a cool product. I call my VP and I'm like, hey, VP, we got to buy this product. And this VP is like, no, I don't think it's the right time. She sees an ad a week later, then she clicks on it and then sees some more documentation directed for her because she's the VP that is more interesting information for her. It's like, oh, this is interesting. We should actually start talking to them and then get converted, right? So now you have effectively two people that were involved yeah. in this purchasing cycle. Uh, so you have to attribute the group level. Um, I don't know of a single software that does this well. We do it mostly by hand. As in like we write our own queries, we group at the company level and look at all the clicks and sort of create a multi-touch attribution model at the group level as opposed to at the user level. And what do you um, mean by at the group level? Like at the company level. Okay, so you're just saying you're attributing that person to the company yeah. that has conversion. I'm attaching okay. it to a company. So like I'm, I'm grouping all the clicks, right. not at the user level, but at the company level. I see, I see. Yeah. So in that case, you're, you're almost less interested on the person who is responsible for the ultimate conversion. Yeah, because right. what I'm actually interested in is the ultimate goal. And usually that takes multiple people. Right. Ah, it usually takes a bunch of people. And, and one of the audiences you can generate from Clearbit, for instance, and I love that they did this, is you get one person who click from one company, they auto generate an audience for everyone else in that company for you. Wow. That's, yeah, so that's you incredible. can start targeting everybody else with the messaging that makes sense for them based on their seniority, you know, and so on and so forth. Gosh, that's super interesting. So, so let's say you're doing it on the group level. Well, actually, let me. You said something interesting there. Gosh, I have a whole bunch of we gotta do one of these again. This is super yeah, we gotta do um, just an attribution one. Yeah, yeah. I well I love yeah, and I love nerding out about stuff in general, but and this is just like kind of fun. So why don't you care about the, the that individual? Like I get you, like you said like you know, the ultimate goal is the conversion. Totally get you there. Does it does it matter? Like, how am I trying to ask this? I'm going to ask this question in a really dumb way and just fix it for me after I ask it. <laughs> Doesn't all that matter is that the VP of the sales was the, or the VP that you mentioned, she's the one who converted. Like, at the end of the day, like, shouldn't it just be attributed to her? You know, I think what you want is, you want to attribute to an ad, right? <clears throat> okay. And so they all work together to get the thing done. And, you know, you guys are in B2B sales. You know, it's just not one person making a decision, right? Decision, right? So uh, effectively, you have to think about the, uh, about the group that is involved in making the decision. And as, as a marketer, and all these actually systems, Facebook and Google, every, everything is set up not to think about groups and actually to think about um, people, right? right. Um, so you need to solve for that on your end. You still, as a marketer, are thinking, okay, I want the VP to see this, and I want the engineering manager to see this other one, right? But when you're trying to attribute and figure out how much it costs to get something done, right? And you have to then think about the group level because uh, you can't possibly count that twice, right? You can't count the engineering manager uh, converting and you cannot count the VP converting at the same time. You have to count that as one conversion. And then so now I want to group all the clicks that are associated with that together so then I can think about, oh, you know what? It, there is value in the middle of the funnel clicks that I get, even though it's not the person that's the economic buyer that sees it, because in the data it shows me, and this is where weighted attribution can come in, in the data I can see that if I get a bunch of clicks from low-level people in the middle before the conversion happens, 
I'm able to convert at a higher rate, right? That's when you start doing all these like more nuanced and um, ways of attributing. So do you do the same thing with the ads then? So like, let's say there's 10 different ad ads that went across went to people at working at that company at various different titles. Then if somebody's asking like, Hey, what ad is the most effective for us? Are you then saying it's actually which ads are most effective for you? Because we group them based on how, based on the conversion of conversion. And that. Uh, we, we grouped them based on the persona. You mean? Yeah. Not the conversion event, right? The oh, conversion sure. event is going to be probably similar. Although, in the beginning, if they're in the middle middle funnel, then it's not the conversion event. So you might, yeah, you're right about that. It's we're, we're grouping them based on the part of the funnel you're falling into as an overall company, right? So if you're like in the early stages, we're trying to warm you up. Right, right. So if you're if if you're looking at an effectiveness of somebody's ad campaign and somebody asks, asks you like, what's the most effective ad? You're probably looking. I'm asking, are you looking at? Hey the VP, she converted based on this ad and it has the highest converge, converting for all VPs. Therefore, this is the effective ad. But in addition, all this other stuff was also taking place, which helps. It might not be as direct of a line, yeah. but it does help. So you look at it almost in pieces. In pieces and you give them weights. You're saying, you know what? Maybe I, this is 80% important, but these other things should I, get some portion of the... Um, value of what we're doing yeah very smart way of doing it wow super interesting um all right that's it for my side dan i'm sorry <laughs> i went down a bit of a rabbit hole there but i just find this thing so fascinating and i don't know i don't know if you see i see a lot of this stuff you, know, you just see so much content on linkedin and whatnot of people talking about like ungated advertising and honestly i've seen a lot around throwing out attribution altogether which has always just seemed like such a silly argument to me and so it was like fun talking to you about attribution a bit because i think it's such an important piece when you do anything is like you have to have the data to be able to tell you what's working what's not working and just i don't know i've heard so much about data that um not good. But anyway, we really appreciate the time today. Thank you so much. Uh, let's do this again. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me, guys. Beautiful. Thanks, Dan. Talk soon. Speak Have soon. Bye. 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 All right. And that's a wrap. Um, it was great to have this conversation with Kyle and Dan. Uh, it was wonderful to also go through our own journey as, as a company trying to do sales for services uh, and tech-enabled services business. Um, and they're quite insightful on how and when you should start hiring a team. And I was, you know, I felt validated to have that conversation and know that, oh, it turns out that I went and hired the salesperson at the right time in the, in the history of our company. So um, uh, I'm happy you got to listen to that. You know, as always, please follow and subscribe our show wherever you're listening to it. Our next episode is with Leon Sasson of Rye Science. Uh, he's a fellow founder and CTO, uh, but quite growth-minded. Uh, so we had a really good conversation about iOS 14 and the different changes in the mobile world uh, and their history as a company. So subscribe to listen to that one as it comes in. All right, have a good one.